Welcome to Healthy Habits, Happy Homes with the Guelph Family Health Study, where we share research and practical tips for applying it to your own family. Each week, we'll bring you evidence-based health information from experts. Our quick tips will help you create healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome to this week's episode of Healthy Habits, Happy Homes. My name's Tori. And I'm Lisa, and we are excited to have you join us this week. So this week, we will be doing things a little bit differently. We will not be discussing practical tips, but rather exploring the idea of gender, health, and families. So we would like to welcome Julia Grusin-Wood. Julia is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Family Relations and Applied Human Nutrition who focuses in the area of gender, families, and health. So welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. Okay, so as we talk, I'm going to be using a few um, terms that might be unfamiliar. So I'm going to quickly define them just so you know what I'm talking about a bit later on. When I say LGBTQ, um, what I mean is lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer community. Um, When I say gender nonconforming, a very sort of surface, simple definition of this is people who don't conform to sort of the um, gender role of uh, masculinity or femininity and don't see themselves as falling neatly into man or woman. So it might they might be trans or they might uh, just consider themselves not conforming to um, either either category and see themselves as sort of outside the boxes of male or female. When I say gender norm, I am referring to sort of masculine and feminine ideals. Um, those are the those are the gender norms that we have right now. And I'll explain those ideals shortly. So, Julia, maybe we can start by talking a little bit about your research. Sure. Um, So to start with, um, my dissertation research um, was actually a qualitative study of autism providers, of um, uh, autism standard of care. Um, But while doing this work, I realized that uh, gender roles influence not only their own health health outcomes, but those of their children. Wow, that's very interesting. So what uh, are you talking about, Julia, when you say gender? Okay, so uh, gender is the social characteristics that have been assigned to male and female bodies. The idea of male and female bodies is a little bit controversial, but I'm, that's for another podcast. Um, so often uh, men are viewed as naturally having masculine traits, and women are often viewed as naturally having feminine traits. So masculinity and femininity are what's often called binary opposites, which is a little bit of a jargony term. Um, But it basically just means, um, you know, whereas masculinity is characterized as being of the mind, reason, action, strength, and dominance, femininity is considered like the opposite, the flip side of the coin. So being of uh, the body, emotions, passivity, fragility, submission. Um, And so masculinity and femininity really structures our world in like a million different ways. Um, And like a really obvious way to think about in our everyday lives is like color, how we color code pink and blue and even green in a different way. Um, 
It's also, gender is also like a spatial issue. So we can think about this on the level of like the individual body and also the social body. So in terms of the individual body, um, mainstream ideas about the body is that, you know, women's bodies are supposed to be slight, slender, small, um, and our comportment is even supposed to exaggerate our uh, smallness, for lack of a better <laughs> word. Um, so think about even um, like my posture right now, crossing my legs, or the like standard ladylike posture of hands cross, legs cross, right? We're supposed to re reduce. Um, whereas men, the classic sort of archetype is being sort of muscular, strong, um, even big. Um, it's about a sort of increasing your physical presence. Um, you know, legs separated is kind of the classic male mm -hmm. uh, comportment. Um, we, and we've now called this man spreading in some, <laughs> um, or like a strong handshake. And there's like the, the sort of classic archetype of this is the superhero versus the princess, right? These are the sort of ideals mm -hmm. given to children at a very young age. Um, but on the level of the social body, um, Men have traditionally occupied the public sphere of uh, economic and political labor and circulation, whereas women have occupied the domestic feminized space of the home. So while these things have really started to change, um, most positions of economic and political power uh, globally and also here in Canada are dominated by mm -hmm. men. Um, and feminized professions such as like childcare, uh, nursing, teaching, probably nutrition as well, <laughs> are generally um, underpaid to show that these sort of feminized um, skills and knowledge is, are not as valued as the more typically male-dominated. Um, and even though women have entered the workforce, um, they still often remain the primary caregivers of their children and the sort of managers of the household. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm trying to say here is that um, on both an individual and social level, men are sort of encouraged and taught to sort of take up more space in a public manner and in the, in the, in the manner of your, your own body. Mm -hmm. um, and women are sort of taught to take up less. Um, but I think that both men and women are constrained um, by masculine and feminine ideals mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we're not really fully free to be multidimensional human beings, um, mm -hmm. which we are. And so why is paying attention to gender so important? Okay, so as I've try, tried to sort of communicate my, with my last answer, gender um, structures our world and our life experiences and opportunities in quite uh, a lot of ways. Um, but I'm going to give some examples, some more in-depth examples. So we can think of like kids' clothing stores and uh, toy stores, right, and how they're separated okay. mm -hmm. boys, girl sections. Um, so what I want to say is that these sections don't just um, – provide toys and clothes to boys and girls. They also teach what it means to be a boy and a girl. And there's actually research that's shown that um, uh, toy stores are more divided now by gender than they were 50 years ago. Mm. Oh. And that, yeah, and that um, uh, boys' toys, like that you find in the boys' toy stores, it's a funny way of saying <laughs> <Yeah>. it, <laughs> sections, uh, boys' sections in the toy store, um, are focused on toys that are linked with mathematical logic and reasoning and sort of teaching and developing those skills, okay. whereas the toys in the girls' section are focused on teaching, um, you know, uh, beauty skills um, and also um, building, developing skills in emotional labor, cooking, cleaning, caring, nurturing, this type of thing. Mm. And so what that does is um, 
basically it creates gaps for both boys and girls, right? Because girls miss out on the sort of logical training method, like getting a sort of a head start on those things. And um, boys miss out on learning the really important skills of emotional labor and also like enjoyment in your body and physical appearance and those types of things. Um, well, and it's mm-hmm. really interesting because yeah. actually I, I can, I've walked through many a toy store and, uh-huh. and I've never thought of it that way. Uh-huh. And now that you say it, it kind of, it makes sense. Like, right, right. When I think about what I've seen in the boy section or the girl, girl mm-hmm. section, I mean, they are different and I, and, and I know that. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't think of it in what are the two differences actually teaching. Yeah, what are right. they showing the kids? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a learning uh, experience, I think, right. for both parents and kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you learn about um, who you're supposed to be mm-hmm. and um, what's expected of you. And you're also learning skills. Yeah. Right. Which shape your development and um, who you who you're going to become and maybe what you're interested in later. You know, there's a lack of women engineers and um, that could be partly because, you know, they're not learning these skills at a really young age in the same way that um, boys maybe are with their toys. I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's a bigger issue, but <laughs> you yeah. could trace it back to certain experiences like this. Mm-hmm. But basically what I've been saying about this toy store, it's an example of what some gender theorists have called girling the girl. Basically what girling the girl means is so you know that moment when a baby's born (laughs) and um, the doctor midwife whoever pronounces like it's a girl and um, this maybe doesn't happen so much anymore but like slaps like a pink swaddle on the girl right Mm. this marks the process of learning to actually become a girl sort of being integrated into an understanding of ourself that's shaped profoundly by our um, again jargony assigned gender identity so it's a girl Um, and then that's the beginning that uh, of what how our lives are going to be constituted. So how we're going to experience the world, world and people are going to experience us. Um, and, and actually, something that always sticks with me is this experience I had um, when my partner um, had, like, we had the first ultrasound for our baby. And the ultrasound technician, like, you know, put the jelly on and we, we saw, like, a squiggle. Our baby was six weeks old. So basically, like, a little tiny tadpole. And, like, didn't have a head, but was, like, squiggling all around the screen. And the um, lab, t- the, the ultrasound technician said to us, it must be a boy because it's so active. Oh. And I was like, oh, like, there isn't even a person yet. You're just assigning attributes based on, like, an active characteristic, right? So it's, like, it even starts before birth. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, um, you know, there's there's also research past the moment of birth to show that infants are regor- regarded by others in very different ways based on their gender. So um, when interacting with little um, boys, um, people are more likely to use um, active um, adjectives um, based on their sort of strength, um, their like their uh, smarts mm-hmm. and this type of thing. And when they're interacting with girls, they're more likely to use like uh, things based on their appearance. And so I have a two and a half year old now. And I've really noticed this because she has like short hair, mostly because she's like slow to grow in hair. <laughs> and and um, she also like often just wears like pants and a shirt. Yeah. And so a lot of strangers just assume like, oh, this is a little boy because she's not like wearing a dress or something. I don't know. And um, whenever people assume she's a boy, it's, oh, so active, so busy. Um, but I just also wanted to point out that this plays out in um, like kids shows, movies, media, this type of thing, um, as well as um, adult stories, movies and media. Like there was studies done about um, 
kids' shows and, like, 621 characters from 163 popular cartoon series. Like, women were this mostly um, the supporting roles, wives, mothers, um, sort of sidekicks. And they were characterized as, like, materialistic, jealous, superficial. And there was twice as many shows with male characters versus female um, and then if you look to adult uh, stories um, in fiction, so like media, um, movies, TV shows, there's like, have you guys heard of the Bechdel test? No. Okay. So it's become like quite a popular litmus test of like gender role inequity. Mm-hmm. Um, so all a, all a story has to do is have two women in the whole story, so a movie, say, um, that have names and that talk to each other for a total of two minutes, like in total, mm-hmm. um, about something other than a boy. And most movies do not, or books or whatever, do not pass the Bechdel test. Wow. Even oh. um, even shows like Sex in the City, where it's like mostly female leads, um, most episode, episodes don't pass the Bechdel test because they're only talking about boys. Always talking about boys. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So these things like really continue on until to our adulthood. Um, very true. So when we're exploring these gender roles and talking about health, how would you describe health? Okay. So there's lots of different understandings of health. There's a sort of classic like biomedical model of health as being like a physiological state of wellness and absence of suffering. Um, but my background's in medical anthropology, and here health is seen as a bit more of a complicated topic. Um, so here we see health as... Um, shaped by and symbolic of our cultural systems and linked to uh, social inequities, power, oppression, these types of things. Um, But really, uh, it's that it's the understanding that, um, you know, physiology is extremely important, but that we can't understand our bodies, including health, illness and healing apart from their cultural meanings. I also understand health as like a moral category. So um, a lot of researchers have described this time as marked by something called healthism which is the notion that health is central to who we think we are, Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty new, um, and that good citizenship requires each individual to work on their own um, health by taking personal responsibility for it and making the right healthy choices. So by eating, like, fruits and vegetables and organic food and exercising um, and teaching our children, like, the right sort of healthy um, habits, we can, like, avoid illness and death as much as possible until death comes for us all. Um, but <laughs> um, which is all like, this is all very important, right? This is just the discourse we're talking about. Um, but the thing is that by only considering health as sort of a personal responsibility or choice, um, we're missing um, how health is part of our cultural system. Um, and so like an example of this would be how we like think about cancer um, commonly. So, um, you know, there's this sort of, common discourse that if we uh, just keep healthy, stay away from like eating pesticides and exercise and, you know, don't smoke and all that stuff, which is important, um, we can ward off cancer. Um, And that if we do get cancer, we can sort of beat it with, you know, chemotherapy, but also a positive and can-do attitude. Um, Mm -hmm. Like this sort of idea of positivity is really big in in, uh, cancer recovery. Um, But what's obscured by this approach is how, like, rising cancer rates are directly linked with, like, uh, industrial and environmental pollutants and toxins used and also masked in our, like, everyday uh, products, the buildings we work in, the air we breathe, the makeup we use, like, all this type of thing. 
And so rather than like demanding more corporate or governmental accountability, we can like sometimes redirect social problems to individual moral failings. Um, like so it's like a failure of willpower, action, responsibility, state of mind. Um, and the same can be true about things like, uh, you know, diabetes, obesity, HIV, AIDS, like they're sometimes looked at as individually rooted rather than systemically um, created um, by sort of the systems we have in place to support people that are larger than the individual. You've talked, um, I think you gave us a really good idea of uh, gender, what, what we're talking about when we say gender mm -hmm. and what we're talking about when we say health. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm interested to know the associations, like what do we know mm -hmm. about gender and its association with health? Yeah. Okay. So um, I keep saying this and it's like sort of hyperbole, sort of not, but like gender and health are associated in a million different ways that are like easy and hard to talk about <laughs> in okay. certain ways. Yeah. So um, I would say our ideas about health itself are shaped by gender. Our healthcare infrastructure is shaped by gender. Our health values, actions, and behaviors are shaped by gender and the health of our family is shaped by gender. So I'm gonna use some examples to talk about that. Um, I'm gonna turn back to cancer first and talk about the differences between um, campaigns and treatment models for prostate cancer versus breast cancer. So when we think so about- So sorry, when you're explaining this, this mm -hmm. would be the um, a, a health example. A health example, okay. yeah. So um, prostate cancer campaigns, they use like masculine tropes, such as like the mustache for Movember, Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, and the advertisements, all the advertisements I could find were were like in masculine coded colors like red, white, black, blue uh, and featured taglines like real men wear gowns, man up, give cancer the finger, man in big letters, Ifesto. <laughs> Um And one ad says meet. Uh, meet Tim. He likes motorcycles, beers, and professional rest wrestling. He also gets prostate exam uh, exams. So, like, these campaigns, to me, aren't just using gender norms to try to get men to pay attention and get screened, but they integrate, like, hyper-heterosexual masculine uh, roles as central to the meaning and experience of prostate cancer intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and so getting tested is completely wrapped up in gender socialization. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the flip side, breast, breast cancer campaigns and advertisements are all, like, all pink. Mm -hmm. Every single one. Um, there was, like, this uh, breast cancer advertisement I found with um, a, woman, a woman in, a, like, a black uh, long evening gown wearing high heels, like, kicking in front of her, like, as if she's kicking cancer. Oh, okay. Um, and, like, so just hyper heterosexual feminine ideals, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, one of the best books I've ever read was written by this uh, medical anthropologist called Lachlan Jane, who had breast cancer. And she talked about how every single interaction she had with the medical field while she had breast cancer was completely hyper-feminized. And she's a lesbian, and she was like, this doesn't resonate with me at all. But all, like, all the support groups were... Um, it featured like um, buckets of makeup in the middle and mm. women were encouraged to wear wigs, makeup, breast prosthesis if they hadn't um, already had um, the surgery. Um, and she was encouraged to be optimistic, positive, appear happy, beautiful, all these things. And she was like, why? Like who, she called it a tyranny of cheerfulness. She's like, 
why am I expected to look well and happy and beautiful when I'm suffering and pain and might die? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she was thinking that these, the feminine social role was creeping very pervasively into her illness experience. Mm-hmm. So her illness was understood as part of her femininity and actually working to silence her experience. Um, because, you know, women, I mean, in terms of feminine ideals, aren't really supposed to complain or, you know, look like they're suffering, this type mm-hmm. of thing, right? Okay. Um, but in everyday ways, to um, like a much less dire degree, um, women and men have been shown to have different he- health priorities that stem from our socialization. And um, to talk about within a heterosexual family uh, context, uh, there are there are certain poignant things. So, for example, like women uh, use, f- think of food as like a way to nurture the family often mm-hmm. and yep. will often um, take great pains to provide uh, food for their family, think about food a lot, um, will be inclined to s- sort of, if their family has different food preferences, make multiple meals um, to adhere to those food preferences, provide for everyone. Um, versus um, men are less inclined to think of food as connected to nurturing and love for their family um, if they do cook. Um, and um, if they do cook, they, they'll they generally just think about making one meal for everyone um, and also are more likely to use the barbecue. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but also, it's also been shown that men tend to prioritize physical activity and physical, physical activity with the children okay. more than women. Um, and that physical activity that men and women do can tend to be different sometimes. Um, also, uh, women often still consider themselves as responsible, not just for their own health, but for the health of their families. So uh, they are likely to consider health as a collective endeavor rather than an individual one and are more likely to engage in the everyday health work of the family. Now, Julia, are there any inequalities around health that are related to gender that you've found? Yes. Looking momentarily beyond like the heterosexual family. Um, we know that members of the LGBTQ community who may inhabit like a range of masculine and feminine traits um, experience like a high range of violence, discrimination and stigma based on their non-conforming gender identity. Um, they're more likely to be suicidal, living in poverty, deal with mental and physical health issues um, because of this discrimination and social inequities. Um, but because most gender nonconforming people or LGBT people as well have experienced discrimination when in interacting with healthcare providers, they're less, less likely to seek medical assistance um, when needed and so have higher rates of morbidity and mortality. And there's also less health research um, geared to these populations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another way that health is linked to inequity is through the funding of health research. So until very recently, um, it was considered that heart disease was the number one killer of men. And now this has changed because research has started to incorporate um, women into uh, the health research. Um, And now there's this understanding that like women's symptoms are really, really different. Um, But until very recently, heart disease was coded as like a very male problem Mm -hmm. and was given the majority of funding. And then we can think about um, sort of diseases or ailments that um, are seen as affecting only women, such as like endometriosis. And there's like a stark lack of funding and knowledge and information about endometriosis. Um, there's also a lack of, of funding and uh, research impetus for um, the sorts of health concerns that LGBT um 
people face as well. And so the health research, what's get, what gets funded, what gets looked at as important is very much related to uh, gender inequities. So in terms of how health operates in heterosexual family homes, research shows that systemically women in heterosexual relationships complete double the unpaid and domestic labor still, and so or, and the emotional labor. So things like cooking, cleaning, appointment making, uh, coordinating event planning, carrying kin work with families, um, than their male part, their, their male counterparts. Um, interestingly, it's been shown that they complete less paid hours in the public workforce than men, and oftentimes they're the ones who make the sort of quote-unquote sacrifice um, to cut back or change careers to care for the family, to hmm. create work-life family balance. Yet, um, they have been shown to um, do more work overall on a daily basis. And when you think about housework, domestic work, kids' work, caring work. Um, So this has actually been termed by some as the double day. Mm -hmm. So you work in the office or whatever, and then you come home and you're working on dinner, you're working on kids' bedtime, you're working on waking up in the night with the kids, and so you really have very little time to yourself. And it'd even be different than a man coming home from the office even later, right? But coming home and maybe not carrying that same load of work once they're home. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then on the alternate side of, or sorry, on the other hand of things, um, like it's also been shown that men still feel more pressure to be the economic breadwinners. Mm -hmm. They feel like they have to oftentimes say yes to working long hours, missing out on family life, that Mm -hmm. they don't really have a choice. And they feel less supported taking on an active or primary nurturing or caregiving parental role. So, like, really here, nobody totally wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so the expectation to sort of juggle paid work and unpaid work um, and all these sort of gender expectations have distinct health effects, but these have really been little explored. Um, so that's part of what we're doing with the sub-study is to create more knowledge about this. Mm-hmm. So with our study, by talking to families, understanding their gender roles, what they think health means, what they do to create healthy homes, we can learn more about how gender and health are impacting our participants' lives and the health outcomes of their children. And then we can learn how to create future studies um, that foster gender equity within the home, which we believe will lead to better health outcomes. Those are all really interesting questions, really important questions to ask. Thanks, Lisa. (laughs) Um, As kind of a podcast, Healthy Habits, Happy Homes tradition, (laughs) we tend to end with some take-home points. So other than me never walking through a toy store with the same lens again, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm wondering if you had any uh, take-home messages Sure. Yeah, I have a few. First, I think that gender and health are interrelated. They're shaped by culture and our social context. Um, I also think health and gender are inequities exist, and they're often interwoven. Another thing to consider is that gender uh, norms are accomplished through health perceptions, activities, and research. And just like parents model health, they also model, model gender, and both forms of modeling have a huge impact on our kids' lives. And then the last take home uh, to consider is that because we don't know that much about how gender impacts healthy habits in the homes, there's gaps in our understanding of how to support healthy habits in our homes. So we're working to fill these gaps through our gender sub-study. Well, thank you very much, Julia, for all that information. I'm sure our families have learned a lot. So we will be seeing you next time on the Healthy Habits and Happy Homes podcast. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Healthy Habits, Happy Homes. We can't wait to have you tuning with us next week. But in the meantime, if you'd like to connect, you can visit our website, www.guelphfamilyhealthstudy.com, or visit us on Facebook at Guelph Family Health Study. Thanks and have a great week.